you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Why would an entrepreneur and noted venture capitalist zoom in on education? How serious are the educational challenges we face in the United States? Is there a simple path forward to creating a better education for every student? Get ready to drink from a fire hose on today's podcast. My guest today is Ted Dentersmith. Ted is a noted venture capitalist, author, and executive producer of the Sundance-acclaimed educational documentary, Most Likely to Succeed. Ted believes that with the best of intentions, we're ruining the futures of our kids and our country. He says we stubbornly cling to an obsolete education model that prepares kids for assembly line jobs that no longer exist, and that failed policies have turned schools into a dreary regime of testing and accountability. And worse, he believes that even our best students learn little, as so many lose curiosity, creativity, intrinsic motivation, and a sense of purpose. Ted shares with me a love of physics and technology, and he himself, so he himself is deeply curious and creative. But recently, Ted has come off of a 50-state tour of schools and communities uh, with his film, throughout which he has seen the very best of learning experiences, which have provided for Ted an inspiring vision of how schools can launch kids into lives of competence, curiosity, and purpose. Ted, welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. No, it's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about uh, how you got to this vision of education. Well, it's a long journey like it is for so many of us, but it really for me started with a collision between observations in my career and then things with my kids. Because at the end of the day, kids are, you know, the most personal of all touch points. But, you know, my career, I saw two things. One, that innovation is just crushing every routine job out of the economy and that will accelerate. And so absent anything around schools and progress, this is an issue society is going to have to deal with and explains a lot of the data we're trying to parse our way through in terms of you know the growing divide and the number of people on the sidelines and the declining median wage. Um, the other thing I noticed in my career was that academic superstars often had great careers at big structured, you know, lumbering companies with job ranks and grade levels and you know hoops to jump through. They had been perfectly prepared for those kinds of jobs, but when they hopped over and tried to do something really innovative, they often struggled. So that was sort of my professional perspective on this. And then with my kids, you know, I went from trusting to concern to alarm to doing what I'm doing today. And it was really <laughs> around the issue of as I watched what my kids were, you know, were doing in school, I went from, you know, I, I describe it as I was a typical parent. I focused on how my kids were doing and how much they were doing, you know, what grades they were getting and were they buckling down and doing their homework. And along the way, I started to look at what they were doing. And I started to ask the question, is what they're doing going to be helpful to them as adults, indifferent or irrelevant, 
or actually downright harmful. And the more I look, the more I realize that what's going on in our schools today is actually jeopardizing the futures of our kids. And I think that's something any parent should stand up and say, I'm willing to fight for a different type of school for my kid. Wow. So I'd like to go back in the conversation a a minute or two, because you mentioned that you saw students who came out of university and came into these big jobs, and they did really well in the big jobs. But it sounds like you said that when they came into smaller companies like small tech startups and things that they didn't do as well. Can you tell me some of the things that you noticed there? Well, and it's a generalization. And, you know, as they say, all generalizations are false. And so there are certainly exceptions. But by and large, there were really two things that were going on. One was that they were conditioned to looking for somebody else to set the ground rules. And then they would optimize their own behavior around advancing against those ground rules. And so if you're in a big company, those ground rules are clear. You know, you're at labor grade 12. You do X, Y, and Z for Y years, and you will be at labor grade 13. That is really a, a replica of school, right? And, and that's why schools, our school model was so great in the last century. Put them in a world of startups where it's, there are no rules. You know, in fact, the best startups are the ones that break or create or reinvent every rule around what's going on in a, a sector. That's a very uncomfortable situation for somebody that's a really adept hoop jumper. I'd say the second thing, though, is people like that are paranoid about failing, and the whole issue of failure is such an interesting one. And, and I, I don't say what many people do, which is that failure is good. You know, I, I have lived in startups that failed, and it, failure isn't great. You know, like you learn from it and everything else. But if you told me you can either succeed or fail, what would you rather do? I, I'll take success every time. What's really debilitating is the fear of failure, the sense that I won't try this if there's a chance it could not work. And what you find with, with people that do really well in a world of innovation is it doesn't worry them. They say, if setbacks come up, I'll figure my way out of it. If there's a failure, it is short term and it will be corrected. It will be addressed. We'll learn from it and move on. And so you get these people that have been really successful year after year in school. They're conditioned not to try things that a teacher might not like. They are the engines that just thrive on standardized tests where you have to shut down creativity. There are consequences in having a young adult, a teenager or a young adult in that environment with consistent positive feedback year after year. That will shape the kid. That will determine what they're like as, a, as an adult. And so if we are telling our kids, never, ever, ever do anything risky that could fail, that's going to shape what they are as an adult. And if you're not willing to take a chance, if you're not willing to stare down failure, you're not going to do anything great in your life. I like that perspective on failure because I've been grappling with my own relationship with failure. And as a researcher, I've noticed that the first time you try something, it's typically not awesome. But if you quickly adapt, that you can turn this mediocre result into something truly excellent. Are you saying that that is not well communicated in the school system? I'm probably saying something stronger than that, which is it's crushed out of kids in the school system. <laughs> and, and it is, right? If you look at, you know, it's heartbreaking, right? I'm visiting school after school after school. I'm talking to all sorts of kids. And many kids in our, even in our respected, our admired top schools, public or private, many of those kids say, this is a game. All we need to do is figure out the most time efficient way to get an answer or a paper that meets the needs of the teacher and the requirements and move on. And so 
you look, and I hear this from teachers all the time, from middle school, high school, college. They say, you know, it's, it's disturbing. The only question we get from our students is, what do I need to do to get an A? And, and so you, you ask that kid, would you be willing to write an essay that's potentially very controversial, that the teacher might love or the teacher might really not like, or would you rather just write a safe formulaic essay? The answer for many, many kids, and I'm not talking about 30%, I'm not talking about 50%, I'm talking about 99% of kids in American schools, the answer is I will write that safe formulaic essay because I don't want to take a chance of getting a bad grade because a bad grade could cost me a chance to get into the college my parents have told me since fourth grade I need to go to. So what's at stake if we don't make a shift in this area? I think the stakes are broader and deeper than most people could begin to imagine because, you know, when I give talks now and giving a fair number, I start and I just say 50 million. And I say 50 million is the number of young adults we could easily have 10 years from now in our society with no real prospects going forward, chronically unemployed, disaffected, aimless, 50 million young adults. And I say, you tell me how civil society holds together under those circumstances because I don't believe it will. And well, people say, well, really? And then I say, look at the data, right? The last four years of college graduates, half are either flat out unemployed or in a job that traditionally a high school degree was fine with. You know, you're making a minimum wage with 150K of student loan debt, you're going nowhere. A high school degree today, those jobs are largely getting crowded out by a glut of college graduates. So a high school degree, those kids struggle. And you show me a kid who doesn't get their high school degree and what they're going to be able to do in life, it is perilous, perilous, perilous. And then you start to look at what we require kids to do well to get a high school degree. And that's where I get really torqued because kid after kid after kid is not getting a high school degree because they can't do some area of math that they'll never use as an adult. And so I say to governors and state legislators and you know people in D.C. that set these requirements that are so poorly thought out, I can respect a requirement that says a kid should be good at financial literacy to get a high school degree, but I sure as heck don't understand why a kid needs to know how to solve simultaneous equations to get a high school degree because you, on the other side of this table for me, never use it, nor do any of your colleagues, nor really to very many scientists or engineers. And so why would we set it up that way? Well, it's, it's curious that you say that because I know that you and I both know how to solve simultaneous equations because we have a physics background. So what is the path forward? What, what do we do differently? Well, the podcast is short, so I'm going to have to be you know, like the Cliff Notes version. Um, <laughs> but, but I think the path forward, what do I think is the path forward? First, I don't care what school I visit. If I spend time in a school, I find things going on there that are inspiring. Every school has what one audience member phrased as sparks and embers of great learning. So the question is, how do you turn those sparks and embers into a bonfire? And we can go a long way if we just get back to the roots and the core foundational principles that made our country great, which is personal choice, entrepreneurship, individualism, and letting people innovate and create. And so where we see real movement quickly is not when some bureaucratic committee from Princeton, New Jersey, or Washington, D.C. issue forth a dictum that says, you will do X. Teachers are sick of being told what to do in their classroom. They could fill every hour of the day and two times over with stuff they're being told they have to do, particularly when most of what they're told they have to do, they don't believe in. Totally different model, right? An innovation model, which is you say, teachers 
we really are counting on you to turn out kids with these critical skills. We trust you to invent and create ways to do that. Go. And you'll find teachers just come to life with that. So I feel like there's an innovation model that sort of is in direct contrast with what we've done. Let's face it, we've had decades of the most failed education policies in our country. We dictate every aspect of the school day. You know, if you're not on this page of a text on this day, you're in the doghouse. And what's happened, right? You know, we, we've been totally focused on trying to eke out some gains on standardized tests. Test scores stay flat, even down. So we're failing on a goal, and it's the wrong goal. You know, if we said instead, we're the most creative country on earth, let's educate to our strength, let's turn kids out of schools, let's prepare them to be innovative, creative, determined problem solvers, school would change in a minute. And if we said, we're going to trust teachers to do that, teachers' morale would skyrocket. And so that's the kind of movement, that's what we're trying to really make happen at the community and state level and I've got this film that's really a great catalyzer on that front. I've got a book I wrote. And then I'm going, you know, I think somewhat exhaustively from state to state. I'm in Chicago today. I was in Indiana yesterday. I'm, no, I was in, they all blur together. Where was I yesterday? I was in somewhere else, Indiana on Monday. And I'm in uh, Iowa on Thursday. So um, I'll think of where I was yesterday in a second. But, um, you know, but just sort of getting to the people that make a difference. I was in Kentucky yesterday. But Kentucky, great example. Sorry to go on, but but they have a great group called Fun Kentucky. They're focused on bringing innovation to education. It's a cross section of top educators and business people. They will work wonders in Kentucky, and that to me is what's so inspiring: is when you give local groups the chance to work collaboratively across boundaries, work together as a team with the goal of making our schools great again, not not the Donald Trump great, which is you know polarized and hateful but aspirational and inspiring. Give kids a chance to move into young adulthood with the skills and character traits they're going to need to thrive in a world of innovation. So you mentioned that you believe that we need to give teachers more freedom to create. And my wife loves to say something very similar. She says we need to treat teachers like the professionals they are. I mean, they are our professional educators in the country. There's lots of good philosophy that they've studied in school, and they come out, but we don't let them use it. How do you think that we can encourage change in that area from a shift from telling teachers what to do to trusting them with doing the right thing? You'd be amazed at how rapidly things change. Once a principal or once a superintendent of a district says – I encourage you to try innovative things. I have your back when they don't work out the first time. I support and encourage you to teach to your passions. And that happens. That is happening not in every school, not in every district in our country for sure, but it's happening not in one or two. It's happening in a fair number. And when you set those right conditions for teachers and you signal that you're going to support them when they do something different, when they come up with a lesson or a, a week-long experience that where maybe some parents go berserk. Maybe they say, oh my gosh, they're not memorizing these facts that I know that are going to be on some AP test. You know, if you say, I've got your back, you know, as I say, teachers are way more innovative than we give them credit for. And that's not every teacher for sure, but that's enough teachers in every school that we could really turbocharge the learning outcomes in our schools if we just started supporting that type of, of approach instead of making everybody feel just so incredibly risk averse, you know, and people just get beat down. 
you know, and if it's a constant drumbeat of don't try anything new because life's too short, let's just do what we've always done and then fall back on the the position that this is the way we do it. We are selling the futures of our kids short and we are demoralizing our teaching profession. I I think I agree wholeheartedly. I have a small school in western North Carolina that my wife and I have worked with a little bit. And it's the Tri-County Early College near Murphy, North Carolina. And their school has converted completely to project-based learning, which is a really gutsy move in a public education system to completely shift to project-based learning. And they have noticed that they're, I mean, they don't spend many days preparing for their standardized tests the day before they pull out a sheet, they pull the students aside and they say, Hey, you know, you've never seen this like bubble in the bubble test sheet in our school, but you know, you have to do this tomorrow. And you know, this is how you take a test. And that's about as much time as they spend on test prep. And the teacher that I'm uh, working with there says they get great results from that. How can communities help their schools take that kind of gutsy move? It is gutsy, and um, I'm excited to hear about it because those are the kinds of stories that just inspire you know more of the same across our country. You know, one of the roles I think the film most likely likely to succeed can play is if an audience member. So, if a parent heard what you just said about the school in North Carolina and Murphy, what often happens is parents will say, "Well, oh, that sounds good. That sounds like a great sort of summer camp sort of thing. Yeah, work on projects. You know, build a fort. You know, <laughs> it is." Isn't that great? When you see the film, when you see it vividly, when you follow these students and their teachers for the course of an entire complex, challenging project, things change, right? And that's what we find with the film. And, and we're getting, we get a couple hundred requests from schools now a week to screen this film. I think the, the key point is if you take a school like what you described in Murphy, North Carolina, those kids are learning really important skills. The content they learn, they'll retain and the alignment between what they're getting good at in high school and what they're going to need to do to do really well in life is sky high. And so those kids actually are getting far better learning experiences than kids at many of our very expensive, highly ranked private high schools in the country. Schools that charge $40,000 a year or more for tuition, those kids are often just learning a set of facts and memorizing things they're not going to remember and then forgetting it. And even if they do remember it, it will not be something they ever need to use. I, I would have to agree. And I, the students that I have had a privilege of working with at that Murphy school are exactly like you described. I mean, there's a group of girls that built a full-size trebuchet. It's 12 feet tall, and it can toss a pumpkin over the length of a football field. It's amazing. And the amount of physics and the amount of engineering and project learning and real-life experience that they had to acquire – through that process of building that is considerably different than what you have to do in order to read a textbook and fill in the blank test or a bubble in the bubble test. You know, I pick up all these great stories as I travel, but I was in Fort Wayne, Indiana, right? Which is not, I can tell you, not an easy place to get to. And we do a screening and Fort Wayne turns out 300 people to see my film. And one of the people in the Q&A comes up, he's this, you know, big burly guy, he could play, he could be a defensive lineman for somewhere. And he he explains his, his history, right? He was a policeman, actually, in Fort Wayne for 10 years. Now he teaches kindergarten. And he had a principal that said, go for it. And instead of doing preparing kids in kindergarten, which is happening in our country, in many kindergartens, kids are being prepared for standardized tests. He, he went rogue. He's got these kids doing 3D printing. 
They've got maker spaces. He was able to squirrel away, raise the money to do that. And these kids are learning unbelievable CAD skills. I mean, these kids know how to configure designs so they can be 3D printed. These are five, six-year-olds. And I, he showed me on his phone when I was there talking to him some videos of this. And I'm like blown away. And I'm saying like, these kids, we're talking about kids that are six and seven years old that are acquiring skills that companies would want to hire. Six and seven years old. So you think about that. If we just built on that over a period of years in school and broadened it from makerspaces to doing really bold, great creative history essays and really digging in and doing the most thought-provoking interpretations of great literature, but again with design thinking behind it, not memorize facts, say them back on a test and, and move on to the next thing and forget it all. If we had those kids, and fast forward, I guarantee you when those kids are done with high school, they would have better preparation for their life as adults than our top college graduates today. That's what the upside is in education. Let kids run and sprint with things they care about, where they're building things they're proud of, and whether the thing they build is a prosthetic hand, which one kindergarten kid did in this guy's class, or a really thoughtful interpretation of historical events. If that becomes the metric, the figure of merit in schools, instead of a bunch of numbers on low-level cognitive skills, boom, suddenly we have an education system that works for our country instead of jeopardizes our chance to be any kind of a country hanging together going forward. Well, I have seen some of those things that you're talking about because we work with 3D printing and makerspaces in our summer camps that we do. And my observation is that fourth graders turn out similar stuff to high schoolers as long as they're given enough time to do it. That creativity and curiosity just, it drives them to try new things. And the results that, that we see are stunning, actually. And so it doesn't surprise me personally that first graders or kindergartners could have the same kinds of skills given uh, enough time to tinker with it and figure it out. Yeah. And Steve, you think about this, right, is that, that the typical parent listening to us talk, in their mind, what they're thinking about for their kid is this. Put the pressure on them from fourth or fifth grade on so they can have a good college application, so they can then get into a quote-unquote good college, so we can then spend hundred dollars to $250,000 to get them through college, so they can then, quote unquote, get a good job. That's our game plan, right? And then you talk about kids that are in fourth and fifth grade that have the skills required to get every bit as good a job as a college graduate. And you say, why isn't there room in America for a different approach or a different mindset? Because these same kids, there are a lot of great benefits that come from education. And I'm, I am absolutely not an advocate of educating narrowly for a job. I mean, I majored in physics and English. I love what I did, all, all the classes I took in English. I learned how to write well. I learned how to deal with complex written materials. There were a lot of great things that came out of that. So trust me, I am not anything other than celebrating the importance of those types of skills and experience in the kids' development. But, and this is a big, big but, most kids go to college, sit in a lecture hall, take notes, say it back. They write formulaic essays that are read and graded by TAs that have never had any preparation in teaching. There's not that much learning going on in colleges. The only thing that's really changed about colleges over the last hundred years is the tuition, which is now beyond the price point of most families in America. So we've got this model that says, don't worry about having bright, inquisitive kids that realize they're in school to learn things that will help them make the world better. Worry about getting them to the next step, which is a 
good college to get them to the next step, which is a good job, which, by the way, is generally not happening for most college graduates. And, and it's like, whoa, you know, like this just underscores both the fundamental issues and problems with what we're doing, but also the opportunities. So I'm going to turn a corner here for just a second and look backwards because I'm curious how you came to all of these ideas and what your education looked like leading up to where you got these ideas. I mean, you mentioned early on before we started the interview that your father was a carpenter. So tell us a little bit about what it was like in grade school and high school and college. How did these ideas form for you? Yeah, I'm older than probably, if you're listening to a podcast, you're probably younger than I am, right? So so I'm 63. You know, I grew up, our family had a very little money. I mean, you know, my dad was a carpenter. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. You know, I, I went to get a sort of public high school, which was fine. It wasn't a great school, but it was, you know, worked for my purposes. And I think, and then I went to a public college, William & Mary in Virginia, which was back then the tuition. Tuition for a full year, William & Mary, when I was there. This is not for a credit hour. This is for the entire year. The tuition was $250. Oh, wow. You know, so, so you think about what education did back then, and it leveled the playing field. So somebody like me, not athletic, no family connection. When I applied to college, I didn't even know what I was applying to. Like people ask me today, what colleges did you think of? I, I, I think back, I didn't even know what the colleges were. I just like randomly <laughs> heard it. You know, I got an uncle who knew a one school, and I knew one school had a football team, and I just said like, what the heck? These are where I'm applying. But here's what, here's what's important, right? Is that the intensity of school then was much lower, right? We we had a million hours to do things on our own too to form clubs, to do initiatives. I was a newspaper editor. I was involved in a million different things where so much of what I learned, and, and this is what I hear over and over from people, is that the real learning in school often happens outside of the classroom experience. It's in after-school clubs. It's in sports. It's in social interaction. But back then, I think education fulfilled its really critical role in America of leveling the playing field. And so I could put myself through college. My mother took a job at night as a report. She went. She had a horrible job when I was in college to pay for it. But she worked for the local police department on the night shift. So she'd go at 10 p.m., get home at 5 in the morning. It took some of the most gruesome reports and then had to drive home after just doing dictation to cover some murder. That was a sacrifice, to say the least. But when you're all in cost for college is 1000 or 1500 for a school year, you can do it and leave without debt, which I did. You know, and then to background, I mean, I, I really came alive in college. I mean, in high school, uh, it was fine. But when I reflect back on that, the classes were sort of a, a necessary evil. And, you know, I had some teachers that weren't very good. But, but like everybody else, right, in one of the questions I love to ask audiences, how many teachers change your life? And the, and the interesting thing is it's never 20 and it's never zero. It's two, three, five. Almost never is it 10, almost never is it zero. There are a handful of teachers that transform lives, and that's what is such an important role for our teachers, why it's so heartbreaking that so many teachers tell me they can't do that anymore uh, because they're so tied up in a straitjacket with you know state and federal requirements. But I had teachers that changed my life. I, I got really excited about literature. I got really excited about some aspects of science. And then when I was in college, I was at a place that supported independent project work. And so as a senior at William & Mary, I did two honors theses, you know, one in physics and one in English. And that whole process of defining my own problem 
and figuring out what I needed to to make progress on it. And and my physics ended up in two publications, you know, which for an undergrad is pretty darn good. That's what changed my life is realizing I could start to define problems. I could learn the things I needed to learn to complete them. I could try things early that didn't work. And that was all part of the process. And I was going to be evaluated not by a series of stupid quizzes and formulate papers and you know, a bunch of nonsense. Those projects, I was evaluated by what I produced at the end of the project. And what did I produce? I produced things I was really proud of. And so to me, that's really the essence of what we need to be doing in our schools. So what you just described to me is something that a friend of mine who's, I feel, is a master educator, kind of how one of those people I model some of my teaching skills after, he believes very strongly that the seat time in the classroom is valuable only as you take it out into the world and apply it. And so what you just described in college was this idea that you sat in the seat. It was a necessary evil, but it, it organized the thoughts for you really well while you were there. But then what mattered is taking that out into a real context and trying it out. Right. You know, it was, it's funny you say that. I was at two weeks ago, we were, my wife was with me for some of this trip, but I was going from Topeka, Kansas, where I met with the state commissioner of education and advisor to the governor on education and state legislator. So one thing I've learned in this year is state capitals are often and not easy to get to places. So anyway, Topeka and I'm driving down to Oklahoma City and we're on this highway and we pass this big sign and it's the National Teachers Hall of Fame in Emporia, Kansas. And so we pull over and stop and it's a really just a great, you know, not a vast museum, but it's, if you care about education and you're anywhere near it, go see it. You know, but there was this kiosk for one of the inductees and there was this t-shirt and I took a picture because it was so moving and the t-shirt said, no child left inside. And I asked Carol, the, wow. the one who runs it, and I said, this is really interesting. I can think of different interpretations of this. What, what's the deal? And it was a, just what you said. It was a science teacher who did his very best every day to get his kids outside, to, to get curious, <laughs> to see things in nature. And, and he knew kids were not going to get interested in science by reading dull stuff in a textbook and memorized definitions or cramming for formulas. You know, you know, if we want to make our kids great scientists, stop doing what we're doing today and start doing what this teacher is doing. But I also said, no child left inside is perfect, right? Our education system drills the child out of every kid. The curiosity, the sense of wonder, the, the ability to ask a million questions, the ability to be fearless, the be, you know, bold out of the box thinking, no child left inside. We take that out of our kids and we're going to pay a price for that Till these kids run their course. And, then, and unless we change it and change it urgently, the risk for our nation is sky high. Well, I could have another two-hour conversation with you about this because we are totally speaking the same language here. But I'm going to wrap it up with our last two questions that we ask, and I'm going to blend them and let you grapple with them together. The first question is, in the digital age, what does it mean to be educated, where educated is, in quotes, like a definition of that term? And the second question is, what is the purpose of an education? So blend those together and tell us, what does it mean to be educated and what is the purpose of education? If you don't mind, I'm going to start with the second one first on the purpose of education. Because I wrote this article last fall and, and true to form, I got rejected by all these places because it's long. It's, it's, and I'm warning your, your listeners, <laughs> it's long. But Valerie Strauss of the Washington Post was willing to run it and it just went viral. And a very large, she, I, I think the numbers are confidential, but let's just say... This got read by a lot of people, you know, far bigger reach than I could ever have imagined. And, and the basic point was, 
what if the purpose of education is purpose? Wouldn't it be interesting if we said that we should be using these precious years when our kid's in school to help them understand that they have skills and talents. Every kid has skills and talents and passion and perseverance that they can bring to making their world better in ways they define through vehicles they create. And that if really at the end of the day, what we should accomplish with our kids is they leave school with a sense of purpose, a sense that and a confidence that they can make their world better, that they have a contribution to make, whether it's as a Nobel Prize winning scientist or somebody that really makes a stay in a hotel comfortable and great. You know, that, that we should get rid of the judgment of which is a better way to make the world better and, and just focus on kids need to realize, kids need to be encouraged to find their own way to make their world better. And so in a digital age, what's that mean? Well, there's so many things that a digital age means kids don't have to be doing in the classroom because they can do it easily outside. But at the same time, look at what's going on in most of ed tech. The, the consequences of a digital age are so misunderstood. And, and so much of what you see is let's have kids do drills on an iPad endlessly to get good at something that the iPad does for themselves. Let's have kids do chemistry flashcards to memorize the atomic numbers on an iPad that has it right there for them. Let's have kids, I mean, I'm a, I, I like Sal Khan. I'm a donor to the lab school out there. I use it in my film. But I said to him, Sal, why in a million years should a kid listen to 300 lectures to, to do integrals and derivatives by hand on an iPad listening to you when Wolfram Alpha sits right on that iPad and does them perfectly in, instantly every single time? And so, <laughs> so we've, completely, we've completely lost our way when it comes to ed tech. What we need to understand is what does innovation and technology advance mean for the world our kids will be in? How, how do we help them take advantage of those resources, not compete against them? How do we have them teach them skills for when you can find a million different sources of content? It sure seems to me we want kids to have the skills to know what is accurate, fact-driven, and what isn't. But no, we say instead learn from a textbook, where those skills we, the kids need are basically robbed from them by some often uninspiring textbook author who's telling them what to think. And so... You know, as I say, that there, there are a wealth of resources. If kids can capitalize on those, they're going to be in great shape. Make no mistake, you know, the way most of ed tech and the most of, of technology reaches classrooms is not to increase the productivity of kids, but to drill them on low-level things that are obsolete today. But as I say, it's, there, there have been lots and lots of debates about what the purpose of school is. And as I say, there's a certain irony in, in reaching the conclusion that the purpose of a school should be purpose. But that's what I believe. I like it. And I think we're going to wrap it right there. Ted, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with our audience today. And if they're interested in learning more about you and about what you do, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, on the film, the film's website is www.mltsfilm.org, as in most likely to succeed film.org. In a world of Google, the best way to find anything is just to Google most likely to succeed Dintersmith and you'll find everything. And then my personal website that has all the stuff I'm doing is including my blog, which reports laboriously on each week of progress as I go from state to state is www.edu21c.com. But as I say, the beauty here is if you forget the URL, you can just Google most likely to succeed in Dintersmith. And uh, not that I in any way, shape, or form reflect most likely to succeed. But anyway, that's a documentary name that uh, my film team came up with. But that's an easy way to find me. 
Well, we'll link those up in the show notes. Thank you, Ted, for a great conversation. Awesome. And I really appreciate you. You're, you do great work. So your audiences should be deeply appreciative of what you're doing. Thank you. There are lots of opinions about how and why we should change education in the United States. If you only take one point away from today's show, consider this. What would happen if suddenly tomorrow we told every teacher in the country, we trust you to turn our kids into curious, thoughtful, productive humans? <laughs>